Powered by Righteous Media. Welcome to Independent Americans. Welcome to episode 157. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Wartime is here. Ukraine is under siege. And now is definitely a time to stay vigilant. If you don't speak Russian, that last line was Russian warship, go fuck yourself. Last week, as the invasion of Ukraine began, a Russian warship approached tiny Snake Island. Snake Island sits about 30 miles off the southern tip of the Ukrainian mainland in the northwestern Black Sea. Only 13 Ukrainian soldiers were stationed there on Snake Island. That audio is the exchange that those Ukrainian soldiers had with a massive Russian warship. I'll translate what you just heard. This is a Russian warship. I repeat, I suggest you surrender your weapons and capitulate. Otherwise, I will open fire. Do you copy? In response, you hear a Ukrainian guard say, this is it. Then he asks a fellow guard, should I tell him to go fuck himself? And the other guard tells him, just in case. And the Ukrainian soldier then turns up the volume and responds, Russian warship, go fuck yourself. And that line has now become a rally cry for the world. Originally, it was reported that immediately after that exchange, all 13 Ukrainians were killed. They instantly became global heroes and embodied the spirit of the defenders of their homeland. Turns out they weren't killed. They're alive, captured by the Russians when they ran out of ammunition. But it's much bigger than that. That recorded moment of heroism has become ammunition for the Ukrainian people and a rally cry for the entire world in the noble fight against Vladimir Putin. The Russian invasion of Ukraine is now fully underway, and it's only been one week. It's been brutal, it's been bloody, and it's getting worse fast. Last episode I shared with you that as someone who's seen my share of war, there are two things that have kept me up most about Ukraine, nukes and kids. Those are the two elements that are most devastating and the most devastated and the two that are most often forgotten about. When the bombs start dropping, think about nukes and think about kids. Now, a week later, the world is thinking about both. Putin is openly threatening to use nukes and countless Ukrainian kids have died and more will die by the time you finish listening to this podcast. The fight of our time is here. 
wartime is here for Ukraine, for Europe, for the U.S., and for our collective future. The fight of our time is here. And now, more than any other time in our lifetime, now is a time for us all to stay vigilant. And now is also a time for us to fight. In whatever way we can, we have to fight. Wartime is here. Generals gathered in their masses Just like witches at black masses Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction Wartime is here for Ukraine, for Russia, for Europe, and for the world. Even Switzerland is sending weapons to Ukraine. Peace is a fantasy until further notice. Wartime is here. And wartime is a time for fighting. Be a fighter or be the defeated. Unless you're an old timer, this is the closest you've ever been to a world war. And it may escalate to that point. It may already have. But at the State of the Union this week, President Biden didn't talk to America like we're a country getting ready for war. Now, there were strong points of the State of the Union. But overall, it lacked urgency. It lacked focus. And it was truly tone deaf and out of touch regarding the urgency of the war in Ukraine, which may become a world war. Biden didn't even talk about the war that just ended for America. There wasn't a single mention of Afghanistan. Biden didn't want to talk about Afghanistan, didn't want to take responsibility for failures there, or even remind America it's still happening for the people who live in Afghanistan. It was inexcusable and it was shameful. Our allies are still dying in Afghanistan. And at the State of the Union, the president didn't even mention them. At the State of the Union, America's 20-year war was hidden. It was for Godistan. Biden didn't focus our country on our responsibility to that war. And he didn't focus our responsibility to the war in Ukraine. Yeah, he talked about sanctions and he talked about sending weapons and money. But he also said we would not fire a shot at Russia. The only line he drew was one for himself. Meanwhile, our ally, a country of 44 million people, begs for our help as they face down annihilation. And America and NATO hems and haws. Everything needs to move faster, especially on the U.S. side. Every day of delay means more Ukrainians die. Every day of delay means more Ukrainian children die. Every day of delay means more Ukrainian Jews die. This is yet another defining test to see if the U.S. government can function well and fast enough anymore to meet the modern moment. And Europe's stubborn fear of fighting is continuing to hamstring Ukraine, empower Russia, and jeopardize Europe's own security and that of the world. The fight is here. And if they won't join Ukraine in it, They need to at least give Ukraine everything they've got. This is no time to keep any powder dry. 
Gary Kasparov, the Russian chess grandmaster, political activist, and longtime Putin critic, continues to issue call after call after call. And today he tweeted, Mobilize. Defend Ukraine, which is paying a price in blood for the complacency and corruption of the free world that is watching them die. Boycott Russian oil and leave every table with Russia, from Iran deals to green deals. Cut Putin off so there is no way back with him. Kasparov is right. But even now, Biden wants to have it both ways. The U.S. continues to import Russian oil. We're not cutting off the supply. We can't fight Putin and keep taking his oil. We have to commit fully to the fight, to destroying our enemy before he destroys us. We have to strap in for wartime. This is where Biden failed at the State of the Union that's most critical. He didn't level with the American people about how bad things can get and about what sacrifices might be required. He said, everything's going to be okay. He literally said that. But gas prices will go up. It's a cost of war now. And it's the cost of ensuring Putin doesn't destroy a population, continue to commit war crimes, annihilate Jews, and roll through Europe like a runaway train. It's past time for Biden to get real with America. It's past time for him to look us in the eye and tell us the hard truths he promised to tell us when he ran for president. We're not children. And it's not about the next election. It's about the next generation. And it's about being real and about being strong and preparing us all for what could come. It's another gut check moment for America. The time for America to be less like our divided, dysfunctional selves and more like Ukraine. Right now, it's Ukraine that has the spirit, the fight, the ingenuity. We haven't truly had an America since the greatest generation. But like that generation in 1939, we can answer the call now. The war is on. And either Putin controls the tempo or we do. It will be long. It will be hard. And it will be costly. But it will be worth it. This is what is required to defend freedom. This is Biden's 9-11 moment. He can ground America in reality, or he can be Bush after 9-11 telling us all to go shopping. The pandemic is ending, finally, just in time for the start of a world war. It sucks, but it's the truth. And this week, my righteous media colleague and genius creative director Chris Rosenthal put it best. He said, we use the pandemic as training for the world war. Yep. Now it's time to put our hardened people and our systems into the next fight. This is a time for the world to truly rally against a common enemy in a way we never did against the virus. And that enemy is Putin. Chris nailed that one, too. He said, we got Dr. Evil. He's an easy one to hate. He's right. Putin is an easy one to hate, and nothing has united the globe in my lifetime like Putin's attack on Ukraine. After two years of the pandemic, we all have massive frustration to let out worldwide. We all might as well pour it all out on Putin. 
and everyone on cable news and talk radio and Twitter, please stop trying to get inside Putin's head. You have no idea what he's thinking or what he'll do. We went through this with Trump. Stop guessing and rationalizing. You don't have the cheat code. You don't know. The only thing we can predict from Putin is ruthlessness. And we must do everything we can to stop it. This is wartime. This is the most significant global moment of conflict since 9-11, maybe since World War II. And I will focus on it on this show until further notice. We're going to talk to analysts, politicians, fighters, and leaders. And we're going to support Ukraine in every way we possibly can, even if our government won't. Because like never, ever before, Stakes is high. Stakes have never been this high. But if you're a regular listener of this show, you should not be surprised by what we're seeing now. The fight with Russia that we warned you about with Congressman Adam Kinzinger in episode 149 is here. The cyber threat that we warned you about for three years, and most recently with Molly McHugh in episode 153, is here. The nuke threat that we warned you about with Joe Saracione in episode 141 is here. Wartime is here. Hoping it won't happen won't make it go away. And hope is not a course of action. So starting now on Independent Americans, we will bring you the first Ukraine war report. We'll intensify our unique focus on national security, military operations, and foreign policy to bring you more independent content to help you meet this moment, stay ahead of the curve, and stay vigilant. I will continue to dig deeper, to add light, to contrast the heat, to demand accountability, and to work hard to keep you ahead of the news. We won't just talk about what's happening. We'll talk about what's next. And we will level with you in a way the president and others in politics and the media won't. We'll demand action and we'll demand answers. And that's what our guest in this episode has been doing for over two decades. She's been cutting through the noise and reaching people's hearts and minds worldwide, like the audio of those brave Ukrainians on Snake Island. She's a media powerhouse, a thoughtful storyteller, an American immigration success story, and a true voice of reason, an expert on Russia, Ukraine, and everything in between. She's a person who's ready to meet the moment of wartime. She's Biana Goladriga. Now in darkness, world stops turning Ashes where the body's burning No more war pigs have the power And as God has struck the hour Biana Goladriga has been a thoughtful and trusted fixture in the media for two decades. She's CNN's dynamic global affairs analyst, an expert on Russia, a native Texan, a mother, and an inspiring American immigration story. She joined us last March for an amazing episode 106. If you've never heard it, go back and check it out. But she's back again. After migrating to the U.S. as a child from Moldova in the former Soviet Union, Biana grew up in Houston, 
started a career in journalism as a producer for CNBC. She's interviewed newsmakers from President Bill Clinton to Condoleezza Rice to Warren Buffett. She also went to high school with Beyonce. But she's smart, she's experienced, and she's real. She understands the war and the players from all sides and is a clear voice of reason and experience in a media world of chatter and hot air. Bianna's back for a fantastic and fascinating conversation. We get into all of it. Lots of politicians are saying we can't make this move or that move by the U.S. because it'll put us at war with Russia. But we're already effectively at war with Russia. Cyber, proxy, economic, wake the hell up. So the question for every leader in Congress and in Washington right now is, at what point are you okay with the U.S. shooting at Russia? Is it if Putin crosses into Poland? Is it if Russian troops fire into a NATO country and intentionally or maybe accidentally kill an American? Is it when Putin fires a nuke? What's your threshold for U.S. engagement with Russian forces? This is the question that should be posed to every member of Congress and the president now. And members of Congress need to stop acting like we all suddenly need a congressional declaration of war. We didn't have one for Iraq or Afghanistan or Syria or Niger or Somalia. You get the idea. And this would sure be yet another great time for America to discuss the AUMF, the Authorization for Use of Military Force, which should have repealed long ago. We can't only wait for Putin to hit us before we hit him. We can't let the enemy invade an ally, slaughter civilians, commit war crimes, and control the tempo indefinitely. Every night, I go to bed wondering if Americans understand the magnitude of pain and terror the people of Ukraine are facing right now. I used to wonder the same thing this summer about Afghanistan. And the truth is, they don't. Of course, some combat veterans, war survivors, they do. But most Americans don't know the real brutality of war. They haven't seen it except for behind a screen. And most of Congress doesn't know. And Joe Biden doesn't know. If they did, they'd understand the need to stop it in any way that you can. And they'd understand that stopping war sometimes means fighting. That often involves uncomfortable risk and huge sacrifice. It involves heroism. Because it's sometimes necessary to stop a slaughter. And it's necessary so that future enemies know that you'll stop a slaughter. And so that future allies know you'll fight for them. And I've yet to hear a good reason why NATO as a whole, or why an independent member like Poland, can't enforce a no-fly zone and hit Russian assets in Ukraine now. The fear of what Putin might do can't stop you from stopping what he's already doing now. This is a slaughter, and it will get worse fast. Ukraine's allies can make it less worse, or even stop it, and inspire every Ukrainian fighter nationwide. But if they don't, it will not stop. Putin could occupy Ukraine fully, and countless innocents would die. And we'll be witness to another slaughter and another humanitarian disaster just like we are now in Afghanistan. America cares, but America won't fight anymore. 
America will root for you, but safely from the sidelines or the box seats. America won't even fight traitors trying to overthrow our government from inside. That's what much of the world sees right now. And especially after that State of the Union and the slow pace of our actions relative to the pace of the slaughter on the ground in Ukraine. NATO's not moving fast and creatively enough. And Putin is taking advantage of it. It's time to do more than cheer Ukraine from the outside. It's time to get inside and truly stand with Ukraine. It's a time to improvise, adapt, and overcome. For the U.S., for NATO, for Ukraine, and for anyone who is serious about defending and protecting freedom, defending evil, and building toward a brighter future. And we'll do that with this show, and in this episode, and with this guest. Strap in, folks. Ready or not, this is happening. One day, you may have to look your grandkids in the eye and tell them about this moment in history. In 2022, when Putin invaded Europe, what did you do? Did you get in the fight or did you stay on the sidelines? Every single one of us has a choice to make now. Welcome to the next great fight of our time. Welcome to wartime. Welcome to Independent Americans, episode 157. Ladies and gentlemen, independent Americans around the country and around the world, it's here. The war in Ukraine is on. Um, we are, in my view, maybe already into what could be World War III. Many say we're on the verge of World War III. We are going to continue to keep the focus and try to add light to contrast to heat. And I can think of nobody better to help us through this moment than a returning champion, a friend of the show, a true voice of reason and insight and calm and thoughtfulness uh, and a, and a, just a fantastic person. Uh, the great and powerful Biana Goladriga is back on Independent Americans. Welcome back, my friend. Paul, great to be with you. Listen, I'll come back anytime for an intro like that. You, you <laughs> really keep it keep it hot. I like it. <laughs> well, it's hot. <laughs> it, it's hot. And you appreciate it. And in many ways, I'm sure you saw it coming. And I want to talk about, you know, everything from um, the White House response to what's happening in Russia uh, to the American media coverage. Maybe we'll get into NATO. Your Twitter feed is a must for everyone right now. Um, but I want to maybe bring it back to, to center like we always do on this show and ask you, uh, last time you were here was May of, of last year. Where are you and how are you? So um, I'm in New York. I'm exactly where I was when we last spoke. Uh, you know, things here in terms of just COVID and kids being in school and trying to get back into the pre-pandemic world. I feel like we are on the path towards that and we're healthy. We're, you know, working, we're in school, we're a family unit, the kids are good. So from that perspective, you know, and and we're not at war here. So Mm. everything's relative. And given that, you know, we always have to count our blessings. I'm taking my son to an Elton John concert tonight. So Mm. it's something where, you know, we appreciate everything we have and it's uh it's really hard 
grappling these sort of two realities, given what, what's happening, you know, across the world and, and a place that, that's really dear to my heart and where, you know, my family comes from. So I know we'll get into all of that. But mm. Yeah, I, I want to. And I feel like we all need a little more Elton John right now. Yeah. So that's a, that's a good um, I was going to ask you about this later, but maybe I'll, I'll front load it and ask you because you're a dedicated mom. You're you're um, you're focused on family. Um, I had a friend ask me, uh, this weekend, we had family together to celebrate my son's third birthday. And, you know, you have this, this division in your mind where you're like, okay, I'm celebrating my kid's third birthday. And I know three-year-olds are getting bombed in Kiev right now. Right. So I, I just want to ask you as someone who has seen so many sides of this, you've been around the world, you came here as a child. How do you talk to your young children about what's happening right now? So it's interesting, um, just to add a bit more levity to it before we get to the uh, more intense subject matter. Um, the other day I was passing by my daughter, my five-year-old, soon to be six-year-old daughter's room. And like everyone, she's obsessed with Encanto and, you know, that we know talk about Bruno song. So she was playing with her dolls and, and, you know, sort of keeping herself busy. And she was singing that we don't talk about Bruno song, but it changed the lyrics. So we don't talk about Putin. So, and, and I couldn't, and I, I tweeted this because it was just such a jarring moment where I really didn't know whether I had to laugh or cry. And um, listen, given my background, given, you know, my heritage, they are learning Russian. They, they, they you know, speak Russian as well. And, and my parents are here from Texas all the time. They know where we came from and, and what's going on in that region. And obviously, given the industry that I'm in, you know, CNN's always on or I'm always working. So they probably more than other kids their age, but given that it's in New York, I think, you know, most kids really are, are read in on, on daily news headlines. Um, they're aware of what's happening. And, and Jake, my almost 10 year old is very much into war and military and he's a World War II expert. I think he could out teach any professor out there. Um, and so for him, there's this sort of war fascination that I think it's natural in, in kids that have an interest in military, um, but also, you know, fear and heartbreak. And every day he asks me, is he, are they in Kharkiv? Or are they in Kiev? Or, you know, what's going on? And it's, it's difficult because it's hard for me. It's less so much about protecting their eyes and what they're seeing is like, this is a story that just breaks my heart and I don't want them to see me upset. Mm. So it's it's something that, um, you know, I, I, we've, we've gotten emails as with all crises, you know, how do the schools handle it and how do they broach the subject matter? Um, and I'm also mindful, given what I experienced as a kid, you know, the last thing we want to do is sort of instill this lucophobia here in, in the States. It's, you know, this is the fault of one man and, and perhaps we can get into this later. I would say that th- th- the complacency amongst Russians for putting up with Putin now for 22 years, I think plays into this. And I think a lot of people are really asking themselves that tough question of, are, are we to blame here too? But that having been said, you know, it wasn't average Russians that, that made the call to invade. It was Vladimir Putin. So I think we have to be mindful not to go back to what, you know, I experienced in the early 80s of this anti-Russian sentiment and every Russian to call me spy, as I was called. And, and so we don't want to do that. As with Asian Americans after, you know, the, the pandemic, like there, there are so many things that you want to teach your kids about what's right and what's wrong and who's to blame here. Um, and, and certainly it's not their Russian neighbors here in America. Mm. That is such helpful insight. And I, I, as I tried to explain it, my older boy is six and, you know, 
he was around when we were trying to get friends out of Afghanistan. He's been to Veterans Day parades, but I try at the same time, there are no guns in our house. We don't have toy guns in our house. It's a decision I made and my wife has supported. And it's been hard because kids want to play toy guns and they that his friends are doing it. But in some ways, if every crisis is an opportunity, this one's almost easier to explain because this is a bad guy doing bad things. This is not trying to explain Iraq or Pakistan or other places like this, in my view, is is a is a good fight of our time, maybe the good fight of our time for our side yeah. uh, against an evil despot who's doing evil things. So maybe there's there's some um, ease in that and being able to explain this to him in a way as as a soldier myself. I feel like this seems more clear cut than maybe anything since World War Two. Yeah. Um, and there's and, no and, here. It's like, oh, it's American foreign policies to blame here. And it's, you know, we've sort of been down that road for so many of these crises. And um, this is not one of them. And I think it was really telling, even in this present State of the Union last night, where for the most part, it really did just seem like there was a lot of bipartisan support, no doubt, uh, for, you know, his his comments at the beginning about Ukraine and Russia. Um, but I think even this the sense of solidarity as a as a you know democracy, Western democracy versus autocracy, you know, that argument does seem to have both Democrat and Republican support. And I think in this era where it's so hard to get to that point, it's really telling. Mm, I want to I want to pull that apart in a second and talk about the State of the Union um, and talk about the U.S. response, which I believe is inadequate. Um, but as a as a framing to start, um, there's this kind of groupthink going on right now in the media, especially in my view, right, where, where a kind of an idea takes hold and a lot of folks don't have subject matter expertise. So you've got guests, but there are very few people from the region like you that, that are in chairs. There are very few people like me who've been in combat that are in the chairs. They're guests. They drop in, but they're not really guiding the conversation. So, for example, on the no-fly zone, there is this groupthink that a no-fly zone will mean World War III. And the only way to enforce a no-fly zone is if American planes shoot down Russian planes. There seems to be a lack of dynamism and creative thinking, but also a debate about whether or not we're already in World War III. Like in Ukraine, it probably feels like it's World War III. I would argue the Russians have been attacking us for a long time. They attacked our elections. There are cyber attacks. So we're kind of redefining what war is. And the American public seems to be locked in. It's only war if they shoot at us and we shoot at them. But on a macro, are we already, in your view, at war, is, is America already at war with Russia in a new definition of what war is? I don't think so. And I think that this is a you know, strategic point and, and the president himself and his administration are being very careful about walking this fine line of making clear to Americans that this is not America's fight vis-a-vis Russia and Ukraine. The bigger picture I think he's trying to argue is that this is a battle between, you know, right and wrong, uh, democracy versus autocracy, and the preservation, right, of sovereign nations. Uh, And that's where we get to your point of, you know, how do we define this situation then? If we are technically not at war, we're supplying, right, ammunition and money and, sanctions like we've never seen before, right, against Russia. How does this define this moment for us? Because many people are throwing around World War III. You're hearing Vladimir Putin now, you know, threatening or putting their nuclear 
right, army and, and equipment on high alert. And so it does feel like we're, we're sort of ratcheting things up to that point. I don't, and, and this is where it's really difficult because I may have my own opinions, but clearly as a journalist, you know, I don't want to always be blowing yeah. this out. I don't know if Russia, if, if U.S. boots should be on the ground, right? I don't know the answer to that question because I know that that involves a lot of American families having to make really difficult decisions. And that involves at some point getting Congress into the mix. And this becomes a very complicated situation. That having been said, it is really, really, it's becoming more and more impossible each day as I see these images coming out of, of Ukraine and these bomb buildings and children fleeing and, you know, families parting with their, with their sons and husbands. And for, for no reason, like there's no reason for this. This was a made up war. This was all in Putin's head. And so, as you said, on the one hand, it's really easy to say it's a black and white issue. We know who the villain is. On the other, you know, you're sort of entering uncharted territory. He's crossed the Rubicon going in. A lot of yep. people, exactly. and even those that have watched Putin and, and studied him for years, thought perhaps this is a bluff. Perhaps he's going to just sit there surrounding Ukraine and, and allow it to choke itself to instability, right, by having an economy that's near frozen. All of that, um, but no one expected this. Few people expected this, I would say. There were people that were predicting that this is exactly what would happen because it was just unheard of in, a, in you know, modern day 2022 to see a war of this scale. Um, and I know it's a convoluted answer to your question, but uh, I, I I'm not ready to say this is World War III because America's not involved militarily mm -hmm. and, and NATO technically is not either. And I don't know what's going to happen in the next few weeks and, and what Putin does next. Because I think had all of this been leveled at him and had he seen how poorly his superior army, you know, to that of Ukraine's would have reacted, I'm sure he wouldn't have gone in. But now that he has, he's a man that doesn't like to lose. Mm. And so how does he get out of this? Right. And this is all on him. He'd been given many off ramps. I'm not saying any of this is on us at this point. But the question is, how do you stop the suffering there? And how do you get him out of the country? Yeah. And, and I, I appreciate your candor in there. Right. And it, it, this is, you know, when it first happened, um, my wife had, you know, initially been tracking on it like I had been. And I said, look, we, we've got to look at this because this could go a lot of ways. This could go in a way where our six year old is drafted into this fight when he turns 18. Now, that's worst case scenario. Right. But. There seems to be, at least especially in, in, in the cable media chatter sphere, um, this idea that we're talking about what he won't do instead of planning for what he could do. And, and now he has done it. And whether we know why or not, he's kind of a political suicide bomber in the same way Trump was, right? Like trying to rationalize it. There's an old saying, the story doesn't matter. Like he's there now, he's slaughtering civilians. It looks like he's not going to stop. And I think the question for me that that really bears answering is if I'm in Ukraine, I don't need hopes and prayers. I, sanctions are great. I need that convoy gone. I need the air, the, the air assaults to stop dropping bombs. And I think there's a moment where um, we the president missed a moment last night to frame this as a war. In my view, he said, OK, we're sending thoughts and prayers. We're doing a lot. And he's he's going to feel the hammer, but I'm not going to hit him. And, and I think that's what Putin is taking advantage of. And that's what um, what the Taliban took advantage of. There's a feeling that America won't fight anymore. 
and mm-hmm. America won't put their own kids into the fight. So I think the question is going to be put on us. Well, when will we? Right. Yeah. Is it going to be when they cross into into Poland? And it might be accidentally. Right. Is it going to be um, when something else happens? And I think there's also this lack of creativity. Why can't Poland shoot down uh, uh, Ukrainian uh, uh, Russian MiGs? I guess it's because they'll say it's a NATO attack. But I'm looking at the NATO construct as outdated. Right. And I think we're looking at a time in the world where the West is relying on these institutions. We're seeing Congress fail. We're seeing challenges to the World Bank, your areas of expertise. It feels like we're looking at like a bricks and mortar solution to a 2022 problem. And Putin is taking advantage of that and not abiding by the rules. So I just wonder how long we can keep that up. And I think Biden missed a chance to level with the American people and say what this was. And and it comes on the back of Afghanistan where in my view, we betrayed Afghanistan. We betrayed the people of Afghanistan. And now in my view, we're leaving the Ukrainians out to dry. So I think there's a question about, will America have your back? If they won't put our kids in to fight, if we won't send in drones or in floors and no fly zone, when will we? And, and, and so I ask you that because um, what is your view on how the Ukrainians feel about this right now, right? You hear Zelensky saying, I want a no-fly zone. He's begging for more, and he's very gracious, and he's amazingly charismatic. But they want fights right now. They're getting slaughtered, and their buddies are on the sidelines rooting them on, but they're not on the field. So can you break down how you think Ukraine feels in this moment? I mean, there's no doubt they feel abandoned. That There's no yeah. other way to describe it. And thank goodness they have a leader as, um, as relentless, as strong, right, as patriotic as commanding as Zelensky has proven to be. And he, he could have left that country easily and, and many would have understood why. That having been said, he stayed. And I think that alone has instilled a new sense of morale and purpose and sort of the, the fighting. In ha- I, I, again, this is sort of a situation where Putin bit off more than he could chew because he's been, this is what happens when you're a dictator and surrounded by people you know, for 22 years and especially the last uh, the last five, six years by people who tell you only what you want to hear. So I'm not sure if he was told that uh, the Ukrainians would have been welcoming them with open arms or that their military was so, um, you know, so weak compared to Russia's that this would have been over in a day. Uh, that ha- it, it, That's not what transpired. And so you do see the resistance amongst Ukrainians fighting back. And now we're in day seven. And on the one hand, this makes for a great movie, right? Like, look at this, you know, David versus Goliath. But at the end of the day, you know better than I, at some point, Russia will take over, you know, at the rate they are going because they have time on their side and they have military equipment on their side and they have a bigger army on their side and they could care less about the slaughter that's taking place now. Obviously, their, you know, their oppression is, is just doubling down in Russia itself. They don't care about these dead soldiers, thousands of them reportedly, that, that no one's you know, even going and collecting their bodies. Um, so they don't approach war the way the United States does. And uh, again, it just comes down to time is of the essence. And mm. we can have Zelensky deliver these powerful meetings before, you know, speeches before U.S., U.N. officials and, and EU officials and phone conversation after phone conversation with world leaders who promise this and that, but they need everything. They need this and that yesterday. Mm. And uh, I, I just don't know how long this can continue and what happens when they do ultimately take key, right? Mm. And, and then what does the West do then? And this goes back to your point of 
leaving Afghanistan and, and then the consequences of that, perhaps Putin seeing that as an opportunity to go in because clearly the U.S. will not keep troops in, in, in areas where many agree they should have stayed. Um, and so why would they send troops to Ukraine? I'm sure that's what was going on in Vladimir Putin's mind as well. I don't ex- think that he expected this type of response or these types of coordinated sanctions. That having been said, unfortunately, you know, as I was talking to somebody like, oh, this should have been done before preemptively and he would have gone in. And I said, listen, realistically, the European, no one would have done this if he hadn't gone in. You know, that's just the way it is. It took him going in, it took him giving that absurd and horrifying speech about rewritten revisionist history in his mind of what Europe should look like that frightened the hell out of everybody, including yeah. the who then came out yeah. and they're going to cancel Nord Stream too. But, you know, should we have kept the U.S. embassy in Kiev? Should we have taken, I think, you know, there's so memories that haunt Americans about the withdrawal from Afghanistan, but what would have happened if we would have kept that embassy in Kiev? What would have happened if we had yeah. some, some, you know, uh, military experts and kept them there, right? Special armed, special forces in, in Kiev and in, in Ukraine. Would Putin have gone in? I don't know. Maybe not. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're dealing with a person who's playing by different rules. And yeah. we are constricting oh, wow. ourselves. We are constricting ourselves by our own rules. And and I don't know if that can continue. I mean, it sounds like from last night's speech, Biden is OK with Ukraine looking like Afghanistan, letting the Taliban roll through, take the whole country, build a wall around it, slaughter people, put women in jail, crush the press. And it, right now, if I'm on the outside, it looks like that's what we're OK with. Like, we're not going to cross over. We're going to let him take Ukraine and then we're going to wait till later. And I think that at some point we have to we have to decide if if you're dealing with an enemy who maybe not just didn't predict, but doesn't give a shit, like doesn't care if he loses soldiers. He's willing to pay a different price than we are. I keep looking at it like this, the suicide bomber comparison or a school shooting, right? The guy's in your school, he's shooting people. You can't just block the door. At some point, you've got to take out the shooter. And it doesn't have to be us. I think that's where I'm really stunned by the lack of creativity. Like, and maybe I'll ask you this, who is going to step up, if not us? Like, we also assume we can control everything, which we can't. If this was Israel, it, it would have it happened already, right? There are other actors in this space that we may not be able to control. So is it possible that someone can be a new forward edge of NATO? Maybe it's Poland, as, as an example, um, that will go further than the collective is willing to go, because I don't think it ends unless Putin's dead uh, and, and two levels down. Now, that can come from us that can come from inside and maybe that's the most likely place it will come but i don't think this ends until he's gone and and i think we have to recognize that because we've seen it time and time and time again so i guess my my question beyond is as you look at it um you've been great about highlighting what's happening inside russia and i am one of many who've been saying we see you inside russia we see you protesting under abysmally brutal conditions um where does this go in your view Right. Like if 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 Biden sets his place and says we're holding the border and Putin says, I'm going, um, does 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 Kiev become a parking lot and and Putin just moves the border over? Um, and will there be any kind of uh, internal strife or, you know, insurre- insurrection, if you will, inside of Russia? Well, look, we've already got Belarus effectively. Right. And yeah. uh, and now he's fighting for Ukraine. And who knows what comes next? Very well could be Moldova. 
there are Russian forces where I'm from and that, you know, Moldova is Ukraine's neighbor to the West. And right after Moldova, there you have Romania, right? So you've got Belarus and Poland and Lithuania and Latvia, all three NATO members. Then you've got Moldova, which is really the only small sliver of a buffer between Romania. So there you are at NATO's door. So as much as Putin's been blaming the West for encroaching upon his territory going east, it looks like in reality what's happening is just the opposite. Um, You know, we could very well see Finland now want to join NATO uh, and and rightly so, given where they are in their proximity to to St. Petersburg and Russia. that having been said, and I, I'm, I was one who was very skeptical about, oh, going after the oligarchs is going to bring Putin down. Maybe, maybe five years ago, six years ago, 10 years ago, that would have worked, given the symbiotic nature of their relationship. Today, you know, in his mind, he's beholden to no one. And so what if those oligarchs, you know, Putin, for, for many things, and yes, he's corrupt, and arguably, we don't know where his finances are, could be one of the richest men in the world, and clearly likes finer things in life. He's not one to travel to his yacht in Miami or St. Bart's or, you know, that's what the oligarchs and their families do. So in Putin's mind, he always at least publicly frowned upon that. He wanted people to go to doctors and, you know, visit doctors inside Russia, go to schools inside Russia, right? Build your, your fortune and invest inside Russia and tolerate it, everyone living a life outside of the country. So in my mind, I didn't really understand why going after the oligarchs would put more pressure on him to the point where he would reverse course. Obviously there's pressure inside you know, the third day straight where the Russian stock market has not opened. Um, I, I do think the Achilles heel here and, and the one aspect w- internally, because I do think this all has to come internally, is the Russian people themselves. And yes, it, it is it is inspiring to see these people come out and protest. And you see children you know, behind cages, right? As they join their parents in protest. But we're talking about a few thousand people. Mm-hmm. You need daily hundreds of thousands of people out on the streets in Russia. So Russia is the largest, you know, land-wise, largest country in the world, um, 138, 140 million people. You need hundreds of thousands of people out there protesting day in and day out on the street for this to really have a, a significant impact on, on him and their policies. And you don't see that. And you don't see that for a multitude of reasons. Um, there is a fear factor. There, there has been massive oppression ever since, especially Navalny's return last year. There is no, as of today, no access to independent media now internally. There have been a few channels. Some of my friends, you know, uh, really brave people working at the only remaining independent news source in Russia. They were just blocked and kicked out. And my friend said that they just, they, the people who the editors and their, their anchors, some of them have left the country in fear. So that's the Russia that Putin has created. And I think for there to be any sense of change and, and, and getting out and, and stopping this war now, or for Putin to be really, really frightened about his future, is to have hundreds of thousands of people on a daily basis out there protesting. And we're not seeing that. And so this is, this is one of those situations where sending in U.S. troops or sending in NATO fighters, I don't know where that leads to. I think that's it's a sign of weakness to have Putin and Lavrov constantly remind people that they have nuclear weapons. That's something mm-hmm. that Zon does, right? These are so-called civilized diplomatic people all of a sudden throwing out nuclear you know, weapon terminology on a daily basis. Um, so that worries- But it's working. Can I just, it's working. What it's doing is scaring the American people from being engaged. 
right? Yeah. Like that's that's what I think is 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 really like what's the effect, right? And Putin is is Putin going to use nukes or not? What he's done is scare the American people enough so they're saying we can't engage because of nukes. So this is like vintage Putin, right? I mean, the, the, this idea that we're going to get inside Putin's head, I mean, he doesn't think in the same way that the conventional civilian American who's watching the Kardashians thinks. I mean, this is, he's going to shank you before you shank him. It's a prison yard, right? And 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 that is what I think you can predict, that he will push into Moldova. He will push into anywhere else that NATO hasn't drawn a line. NATO fucked up, in my view, right? Like, they won't let them in, and now they want them to fight. So you're just basically drawing the lines for him. He's going to push all the way until those lines, and then he's going to remass his forces, and then we're going to play this again. Like, it, it's I don't think it's complicated to see where this goes. And, and I guess the question I have now, Bianca, is like, as we go through this, um, you've got a congressional election happening in the midterms. The Democrats will probably lose. Um, Biden may not. Let's assume it goes on for another couple of years and maybe Biden loses and maybe it's Trump or, or someone else. I mean, this can get a lot more dicey <laughs> in the next couple of years. And, and what I want to focus in on is, do you think that the world really trusts us right now? I mean, Biden's here and he seems fragile. They know his approval ratings are low. Putin also could be playing the long game as he always had. And so I'm just going to wait Biden out. I'm going to bleed him out. I'm going to wait him out. Wait till maybe Trump comes back in who's willing to deal with me. It seems like we're not dealing on a longer horizon and we're not really looking at how the world looks at us from the outside. So given your global perspective, can you give us kind of a no shit assessment on how we look to the world and what they can reasonably expect from us? Well, I would say one weekend, because tomorrow is the mark, the one week since, since Russia invaded. One weekend, I think that the world can look at the U.S. and the West collectively, right, as having stepped up because of the unprecedented sanctions, the the unanimity, right, in, in that joint collective decision of going after Russia Central Bank and the oligarchs and one company after another getting out of Russia. Um, you know, even Lavrov today said something along the lines that, you know, we expected massive sanctions, but nothing like this. And, you know, then added, like, you can't go out. We didn't expect them to go after Russian athletes. Really, that that's where your mind is. Um, that having been said, that gets us one week. And this fighting will no doubt continue. Right. And so once we've done the sort of shock and awe in terms of sanctions, what comes next? And that leads to your question of are we going to continue to see massive sanctions lead to massive oppression and suffering within Russia? Putin doubling down right inside of Ukraine, going perhaps even further. Uh, then you've got China just putting out on the sidelines, sort of, you know, obviously it has become much closer with Russia recently, but has taken more of a neutral tone. Um, not condemning Russia, but calling for peace. But but China, the the other you know big dog in, in China, in, the peacemaker now, right? right. Switzerland right. sending troops, and China is going to be the peacemaker. Uh, like <laughs> on the sidelines and, and trying to watch this out. Um, I'm not sure if there's any positive here. I'm not sure there are any good notes that she can take away for whatever he may be thinking down the road with Taiwan, right? Um, but. I worry about what two to three weeks or four weeks or four months from now looks like. Because as you know, just from a media perspective and the appetite that viewers have at home to following a story, they, they lose interest in a region mm. after a while. So one weekend, all eyes are still on Ukraine and the region and you know what's going to happen next. 
four weeks in into midsummer, you know, then I worry that that just becomes a quagmire. People continue to die and he just sits there. And, and look, Putin is all mighty and powerful until he's not. And the question therein lies, there's no successor. And, and he, he that there, that's, you know, that's the situation there for a reason. He intends yeah. to be that way. Even in the Soviet times, there was sort of a collective communist, you know, party there that could step in and, and, and you know, anoint someone else the same way um, China's had been structured until recently. Here you have no one. And so it, it literally would be a, 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 an unprecedented change in dynamics for a world superpower that has more nukes than the United States, I believe, mm-hmm. in the thousand, a couple of hundred. Mm-hmm. But um, that, that's what I worry about because mm-hmm. obviously no one knows what Putin's going to do next. Anyone who thought they could read his mind going into this clearly was proven wrong. And we've never really seen him quite in a situation with his back against the wall to this degree. But again, I think I think that the most damaging and the, the the step that would make him most fearful of whatever he's doing now has to come internally. It has to come organically from Russian people. Yeah, yeah. It has to come from families demanding that their sons come home. It has to come from families demanding to know their sons' whereabouts. Right. And this is a country which has, for years, for years, their 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 main party line and their main national line, right? Given what they had gone through and experienced in World War II, was that the most revered people in this country are our veterans and our soldiers. Yep. And Navalny, one of his mock trials last year, involved him slandering a, a veteran, right? God forbid. And so every day you would hear from Putin in the Kremlin, you can't slander our soldiers. They would enact new laws against that, what have you. And here, we're talking about a few thousand reportedly already dead. Yeah. thousand yeah. Russians died over the course of, you know, yeah. their, their war in Afghanistan. And here we're one week in. He, yeah, I mean, Putin is, it, it, veterans are the ultimate populist shield. And and Trump took a page from him on that and, and manipulated it so much to the point that, you know, Ron DeSantis yesterday wouldn't send the Florida National Guard to defend the Capitol during the State of the Union address. I mean, our military has gotten politicized in this way, too. Um, and, and on the flip side, you've got American veterans who are, again, saying we're not going to wait for our government. We're going to fight. I have friends that are going. I have many more friends that will go on the way. And they say you. Ukraine, they're going to go. Yeah, they're going to Ukraine. They will go to Ukraine. They will stand with Zelensky. They will fight the good fight. You know, this is the good fight that many in our generation have been waiting for. Right. This is not the foreign legion. I mean, this is in for many people, the fight of our time and they will go. And I think I have a final question for you and I hope you can stick around for a couple quick fire um, for for our Patreon members. Thank you to them, especially. But I, I guess. There, I played on, on the show um, two weeks ago, the Sting song, uh, The Russians, right? And, it's, and, and Sting basically says, you know, I hope the Russians love their children too. What if Putin doesn't, right? Like, that's what we've got here is Putin doesn't give a shit and, and, and people are expendable and he's willing to take a level of casualties that we cannot even comprehend and still maintain control. So, you know, there will be uprisings, there can be attacks on his life, but he will continue to pay a price that we will not pay. And I think he's counting on that. And that's a part of the calculation that I don't think Biden has leveled with the American people about. So when I look at the scenario you're talking about where 
this continues to unfold and maybe Americans start to lose interest. I think the biggest underestimation is, is how good the, the Ukrainians have been at social media and how good they are at storytelling and how good, um, you know, Zelensky has been at, at telling this story. And even if he dies, right, then it becomes even bigger. There's a mastery of the global communication strategy that is, in my view, maybe the most impressive. Um, that's where I think they're winning. And this has become the world's greatest reality show. And every week there's a new story, whether it's Snake Island or like a figure skater with an AK and 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 no shit. They're white people. Right. And so there's a connection there that I think is going to make this all different in that this seems like it's going to be even more than the pandemic or anything else, a compelling story of our time. So my my real final question for you, Bianca, because you're so good at, at telling these stories and elevating these issues. What is America missing right now? What do your unique perspective, your unique connection, what is it that we're not covering and that America needs to understand that they don't understand now? About this war? About all of it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think, again, when it in terms of let's break it into what does it mean for me economically, right, for my pocketbook, for my family here at home, you're seeing gas prices and oil prices go through the roof, again, because we are in an unprecedented time, right? No one expected Vladimir Putin to do this. At some point, he will retaliate. Now, listen, we have a lot more leverage, given that he, for 22 years, has presided over a single-track economy, and that is a commodities-based economy in arms, right? Those are their two largest exports. But they do provide 40% of gas, right, to, to, to Europe. And a massive disruption there. What happens if they just cut off the gas supply there? He hasn't responded. He hasn't done that yet. That could mm-hmm. easily happen. What happens if we have massive cyber attacks here, which obviously we've seen what they're capable of doing going back to the election and other events. They're very good at that, too. And, and obviously, our own intel agencies and our national security um, experts have been warning us to, to expect that and warning you know, U.S. companies. Um, commercial and and government, right, and federal you know agencies to step up. Uh, what happens if you know all of a sudden you're not able to log into your laptop at home? What happens if I mean there are certain aspects of life that Americans have come to you know expect and and enjoy and depend upon that that may change over the course of the next few months, depending on you know, what what pressure Vladimir Putin is under and how he feels he can retaliate. So that's one. Hmm. Two, in this in this idea of good versus bad, right versus wrong, um, seeing what's taking place thousands of miles away, where you have a country just for no reason other than sheer greed and anger and hatred and warped mentality on, on what history was and what history should teach us about the future has decided to invade a sovereign democratic nation. And that in and of itself, you know, many Americans who especially study American history can appreciate. And when we talk about fighting for democracy, when we talk about fighting for this country, what makes this country so unique? Why this is a nation of immigrants? Why my parents left, you know, an oppressive regime in the USSR to come here um, was to to live up to that to that pledge and, and to that idea of what is America. And you're seeing firsthand, you know, from, thank goodness we have technology that can give us access to what's happening on the ground there, what is, what, what's going on it, to a country where just a week ago, 
you remember we were talking to our reporters on the ground. They're like, kids, everything's calm here. People are cafes. People are going to school. People are, you know, and, and now you're seeing them, you know, in shelters, hiding from bombs and subways. And, and it harkens back to images that we've seen from World War II. And we are a nation, we are the most charitable nation in the world, just financially speaking. We feed and clothe more people than any other nation in the world. Look at how much money China has. Their economy will soon surpass us. They don't do any of that. So given our place and the responsibility in the world, if we want to maintain it, this is the best opportunity that the United States collectively with the West, but the U.S. as the leader has to show that, listen, we're going to be creative here, and maybe we don't send in thousands of troops to fight Russians because we don't want a nuclear war. But we're going to do everything in our power, aside from just preaching, you know, and, and wearing yellow, yellow and, and blue clothing and insignia, to show that we will wear Putin down. Mm. And I think that message needs to be sent loud and clear every day. Mm. And I think even in schools, again, remember how we began. Uh, we want to make sure that there, this doesn't lead to Russophobia because there will be a day where Putin is not the leader of Russia. And we want to be better prepared for a Russia that is a member of the global community, that is a thriving country without a leader like that. And we don't want Russia to experience what they did at the fall of the Soviet Union, right? Uh, where people like corrupt oligarchs and people like Vladimir Putin came to power because so many Soviets and, and, and residents there felt that they'd been abandoned by the West and this idea of capitalism. Yes, it's great that I can turn on cable television, but I don't have food to put on the table. We have to think right. about the after and, and not make sure history doesn't repeat itself. But at the same time, I think we need to be talking to our children about who's right and who's wrong. And that doesn't mean that the Russian kid in your class is a bad guy. Right. That means that they're very fortunate to live in this country and Russia has a beautiful culture and background. And they are, they're the biggest enemy to Russia right now is sitting there in the front. Mm. So mm. that's yeah. what and, and, the, and this and the. And and the, one of the strongest allies might be that Russian kid in your class. Like it, it's just, it, it's about, I think there's a, an important insight that you're sharing that I think is really what Biden missed last night. Biden, it was, it's a 9-11 moment in my view. And last night for Biden was, okay, we're working on it. We got it under control. And he literally said at one point, it's, everything's going to be okay. Yeah. Right. And everything's not going to be okay. And, and I think he needs to level with people and say, it's going to be hard. It's going to be long. A lot of people are going to die, but it's going to be worth it. There will be a day in the future where Putin's not in charge and Russia is a friend, but it's going to be a long road to get there. And I think that's what we need from leaders is a leveling. And that's maybe my biggest criticism of Biden last night. He didn't level with people. He didn't prepare them for how bad this could be. It might not. Right. But he didn't level set it. Last night was like go shopping at the mall. It was not it was not let's hunker down and strap in for eight dollar gas prices and potentially lots of people dying. So I think that that grounding is really important. And it's also important in the media. And I've been flabbergasted by the general weakness of folks guiding this conversation. And at a time where it feels like the Super Bowl, we don't have Tony Romo in the chair. We don't even have Tom Brady in the chair. We've got like Mark Sanchez in the chair. And you are the opposite of that. And you are a voice of reason. And I hope you're on all the time because we need you to guide us through this because some of these folks have no clue <laughs> and, and you do, you understand it from all sides. And I think the country needs you and your voice and your perspective and your ability to see it from so many ways and places 
um, more than ever. You continue to be an amazing American success story and a leader and, and, and someone our kids can look up to. So I am grateful for your wisdom and your time and your focus and, and your discipline. <laughs> You've got great discipline um, and we're going to need you in the days to come more than ever. Paul, thank you. I could say the same to you and we need you and your knowledge and your expertise, right? And your passion about what's right and what's wrong and, and speaking out. So I, I'm such a big fan of yours and I think you do with yours and really this country such a great service, whether it's talking about our vets and caring for them and, and whatever's taking place, you know, on our shores here and in America and our country and, and what's going on around the world. Um, you know, you're, you're a gift. So thank you. Yeah. There's a war going on in Texas too. Maybe we can get you to go back there and run as an independent and win the whole thing for governor. All right. Until then the great Bianca Goldriga. Thank you, my friend. Stay vigilant. There it is. There she is. Look for Biana on CNN. She might be the single best thing about CNN right now, which is often otherwise a dumpster fire, like so much of cable news, but she's the real deal. And please follow Biana on Twitter right now. And speaking of dumpster fires, if you're not on Twitter, this is a good time to get on. There's plenty about it that's shit. But Twitter is right now the best place for real news from the front and from inside Ukraine. And it's where you can follow Biana. She's a true voice of reason. She's a true leader and a true helper. Always look for the helpers. There will always be helpers, you know, even just on the sidelines. Because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. Look for the helpers. They're out there, especially now and especially in Ukraine. I'm highlighting them daily on social media, from the brave Ukrainian journalists to the incredible Ukrainian President Zelensky, to the Ukrainian firefighters running into bombed out buildings, to the American veterans that are already over there joining the fight. War is terrible. But when times are the toughest, people step up and help the most. And that now includes... Many brave Americans, Americans, Canadians, and Westerns from all over are answering Ukraine's call for foreign fighters. And Reuters is one of many that had a report. With our governments refusing to send troops to Ukraine out of fear of sparking a world war or driving up gas prices or whatever it is, Americans and Canadians and others are telling their stories. And they told Reuters they were inspired by Ukraine's fierce resistance. I'm hearing from people I know in the military and from veterans across the country who are also hearing this call and answering. Many believe that their democratic rights will be threatened at home if they do nothing to defend Europe now. And they're stepping up. Ukrainian President Zelensky called on Sunday for the formation of what he's calling an international legion. And volunteers are traveling straight to Ukraine to enlist. Others are going to Ukrainian embassies and consulates, quitting their jobs, dropping out of college, and joining the fight. Reuters talked to a guy named Dax, who's 26, a veteran of the 82nd Airborne Division, an infantryman who plans to deploy with other former U.S. personnel. He said, I feel guilty to not go. 
Like many of the volunteers, the Alabama native declined to give his full name and wants to keep his identity and movement secret for good, smart, operational security reasons. But lots of American vets are stepping up to fight, and, and I feel it. I feel it. I really do. And not all volunteers want to fight. Like a guy named Ty B., who's 23, who studied journalism in New York. And this is what he said. I'm not looking to be a hero or a martyr. I just want to finally do something right. He says he can cook, do basic mechanics, and knows how to handle a firearm. A guy from Austin, Texas, is a software developer and said he would draw on his experience as an army cadet to fight for Ukraine. This is what he said. If they're willing to defend democracy, then I think those that benefit from a democratic society are duty-bound to support them. He asked that his name not be used, and he ended by saying, I'm not telling my parents until I head to the airport. So as expected, many American veterans are answering the call just as they have so many times before 9-11. From Hurricane Katrina to saving our allies in Afghanistan, American veterans are not waiting for their government to act when duty calls. They're going to fight and to do what they can, from infantrymen to cooks to medics. Many more will follow by the day. This is a big story because this is the fight of our time. So give them hell, guys and gals. And thank you for stepping up. I, for one, am very, very proud of you. Ukraine is looking for the helpers. And you're answering the call. So check the hashtag, look for the helpers on Twitter, and share yours. And while you're on social, you can also play guest to guest every Wednesday night. I'll preview the guest. You can guess it. You can follow us on social media, meet other listeners of this show, and you can connect with folks like Rose Shannon from Connecticut who played this week. She had a guest. She guessed Martha Raddatz, which was an excellent guest. Martha was not the guest this time, but she did join us back in episode 67. And if you've been watching ABC's coverage, Martha has been in Ukraine covering the war. Excellent coverage. I've been in contact with Martha, and I want to send her our best again, and I hope she'll come on this show and join us again soon. That episode is up in the archives if you want to check it out. It's episode 67 with the great Martha Raddatz. It's at independentamericans.us. Go to the website, check it out. You can also see video from my conversation in this episode with Bianca Goladriga. You can also see every conversation we've ever done. You can also find them on YouTube. So check us out over there and subscribe. You can also get Independent Americans gear, and you can support this show. And we need your support, especially right now. You can also support this movement by joining our Patreon community. It's kind of like our international legion. And we need you. There's a link at independentamericans.us, or you can find us on Patreon. You can join for as little as five bucks. And you can be a part of this community. You can support this content, and you can get extra content. Shout out to all of our Patreon members. I love all of you. And you are going to get an extra bonus segment with Biana, where I find out her favorite TV show, her favorite places in New York City, and she shares what she listens to when she's running. Biana's a runner, and she talks about that. We also talk about Yellowstone, one of the greatest TV shows of all time, and we talk about 1883, which I just started. I'm two episodes in, and I am loving it. But we both love Yellowstone. You can hear that conversation if you're a Patreon member. And if you're already a Patreon member, spread the word. Help us continue to grow this movement and get that great content. 
And as always, please support us and go to the Apple Podcast Store and give us five stars and subscribe for free and share. This content is completely free on every platform. We want to keep it that way. So you can share it. You can grow the movement. You can bring this critical information to people from California to Kiev. Righteous Media is continuing to bring you the five eyes and all our podcasts and everything we do. Independence, integrity, information, inspiration, and impact. And it's powered by the Righteous Media team, creative Chris Rosenthal, brilliant Bill Schultz, and precise Paula Hernandez. And it's also reinforced by my amazing wife and two boys, Ryder and River. This week, our family celebrated the third birthday of our amazing little boy, River. And he and his brother got an amazing birthday present. New York Governor Kathy Hochul announced she was ending the mask mandate in schools across New York. Hooray! Hallelujah, finally. It's literally the best president my little three-year-old could have gotten. He can now go to preschool without a mask. The first time he'll ever be in school in his life without a mask. And he deserves it. So does his brother. But our little guy is so special. He's funny. He's kind and generous and curious and a good dancer and singer. And he loves Lightning McQueen and Mickey Mouse and his grandparents and his pacifier and bath time and i was blessed when he was born i'm also blessed to have his brother and especially his mom i think i shared this on the pod a few years back but my son's birthday is also kind of like my wife's alive day when the baby was born lori had a very very hard delivery and she almost died we almost lost her that day so my son's birthday is a celebration of his life but also of my wife's and of life in general. And we did that this weekend. And really, we did it all month. But our hearts and minds were also, during his birthday even, with the courageous people of Ukraine. We're teaching our son and his big brother to be brave, like the people of Ukraine, like the Klitschko brothers, and like so many who are over there fighting now whose names we will never know. You are the kind of heroes my boys can look up to and be inspired by. So keep giving them hell. We are awed by your spirit, your unity, your fortitude. And in our family especially, we stand with Ukraine. And I hope you'll join us. America is more divided than ever before. But we at Independent Americans and Righteous Media are working to change that. Especially in times like this. We are built for this moment. And we will add light to contrast the heat of all the other political shows and podcasts. If you're among the 42% of Americans who are independent, this is your place. If you're a Republican or a Democrat, but you're not a diehard partisan, this is your place. And if you're a concerned American or Ukrainian or anywhere else in the world who cares about the future of your country and your world, this is your show. All are welcome. We invite you to join us and be a part of this movement, this army, this solution. And check out all the other podcasts in the growing Righteous Media family. The Firefighters with Rob Sarah has a brand new episode. And B-Dorm has a new episode dropping tomorrow, Friday. And Uncle Montel, the OG of weed, is coming later this year. Subscribe to all of them for free wherever you got this pod. Or you can go to Righteous.us. That's Righteous.us. We use .us because this is an American company. We are working hard to build the next great American media company. So please keep sharing this content and keep sharing the hope because hope is the oxygen of democracy. 
here in America and worldwide. And inside Russia, where protests continue. And to the protesters in Russia, keep it up. We see you. The world sees you. You are courageous. You are brave. And Putin is not the future for Russia. You are. Hope is the oxygen of democracy inside Russia and especially inside Ukraine right now. As I record this, all across Ukraine right now, bombs and missiles continue to drop. But the hope continues too. And it's that energy, that hope that will keep this movement growing in Ukraine and the movement of independent Americans growing week by week here at home. And it will fuel the fight in Ukraine. And stay vigilant, my friend, because eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. And it's a price the Ukrainian people are paying right now in a very big way. And it's a price we in America are paying in a very small way right now. But we will likely have to pay in a much bigger way in the days to come. That's the Ukrainian national anthem. This time performed by the Met Orchestra and Chorus in New York this week. It was in New York City before the opening night performance of Verde's Don Carlos. The entire audience observed a moment of silence. Then they heard the Ukrainian national anthem. And most of the crowd stood in solidarity and many even sang along. We're seeing signals of support like that all across America right now. Right before I came down to record this, I got a tweet from Chief TX Old, who told me, I am a retired Air Force E-9, and this is my statement from Central Texas. The Russian army is trapped, spread thin, and depleted. Time to take it out, and Putin too. And showed a picture of his home. The entire side of his home is painted in the Ukrainian flag, blue and yellow, with, on top, an American flag. It's a retired Air Force E-9 in Texas showing his support for the people of Ukraine. Now is the time to stand with Ukraine. But it's also the time to fight alongside Ukraine. Last episode, we stood with Ukraine. Now, and until further notice, we must fight alongside Ukraine in whatever way we can. Whether it's sharing the truth about Putin's brutality on your social media donating money to support Ukrainian charities, making sure your friends and family don't watch the RT propaganda TV network, pressuring our government to send more weapons and stop taking Russian oil, or signing up yourself to join the new Ukrainian International Legion. This is a time to do more than just stand on the sidelines and root on Ukraine as they fight against evil. This is a time to stand up and to join the fight by their side in whatever way you can until it's over. We must show the people of Ukraine that we not only stand with them, but that we will fight by their side and that we'll stay vigilant. And know you're not alone in your vigilance. We're all vigilant and we're all in this together, especially now. From the 13 Ukrainian troops on Snake Island to Joe Biden to Gary Kasparov to the Metropolitan Opera, to Bianca Goladriga, to the American veterans volunteering to fight, 
to the brave protesters inside Russia, to the civilians all across Ukraine fighting and dying right now, to the children hiding in bunkers and in underground tunnels, to you, wherever you are. All across America, all across Ukraine, all across Russia, and all around the world, we are now truly in this together. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Thank you for listening, especially now, and for supporting this movement. Down with Putin. Glory to Ukraine. And stay vigilant, America. Media.